Holy Gospel according to John, the 12th chapter. Now, among those who went to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said an angel had spoke to them. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he would die. The Gospel of the Lord. Sometimes I'm up and sometimes I'm down. My troubles bury me down. But still my soul feels heavenly bound. My troubles will bury me down. And pour me, pour me, troubles bury me down. Pour me, pour me, my troubles will bury me down. That song comes from a very deep, dark, Lenten place. Comes from the South, out of slavery, out of the kind of faith that only comes when you think that you will always be imprisoned and have no way to find freedom. It's the kind of beautifully Lenten song that I promise I will not tell you is your plight after you leave this place. But there is something deeply rich about those kinds of hymns and spirituals, right? The kind that come from a deep knowing of what the depths of darkness look like. The kind that have seen things worse than we're afraid of in our nightmares. Those kinds of hymns really touch faith and hope in a way that's hard to describe through anything else. Now here's hoping 
none of you have had moments worthy of writing hymns like that. I think, as I think about this Lenten text and Jesus' message, I kind of think maybe our Lutheran church is a gray church. Gray, in part, because that's the most popular hair color in pews. <laughs> if you let your hair be that color. But gray also because we are a theology and a faith that doesn't necessarily see the whole world in black and white. We don't always say, see a yes or a no. We don't see good and only evil. We see a world that's tangled up so that in the bits of messy darkness sometimes come our most hopeful hymns. After all, we have a church created out of fear. Your your name, Grace Lutheran, comes out of a terrifying moment for Martin Luther. I would love to believe that he was such an enlightened man who had studied scripture that he just happened upon great insights that made him be compassionate in the world. Oh, he was walking through the library, thinking deep thoughts, and he almost got hit by lightning. And it scared him so much that his life changed. He had so much stomach problems. It was called Unfichtungen in the German. Unfichtungen, like a perfect Lenten word. Ugh, what's wrong with you today? I'm Unfichtungen. <laughs> and it's the idea that you're so kind of caught up in your own self not being good enough that you can't see anything else. And, and for Luther that happened because his tummy problems were so bad because didn't, they didn't invent Pepto-Bismol yet, for the young people who are wondering why. But his tummy problems were so bad because he thought, ah, woe is me, I'm a vile, wretched sinner, there's nothing I can do about it. And he had this moment of epiphany, thinking, ah, of course, there's nothing I can do about it. When that same phrase that had vexed him forever became his liberation, if there's nothing you can do about it, to get it right. There's nothing you can do about it to get it wrong. We're all kind of stuck in this messy middle place. None of us can, can proclaim perfection and none of us can proclaim to be the least. We're a bunch of gray Lutherans. And yet, as you heard in the introduction, I'm here to talk to you about hunger, so I'm going to encourage you to do something, right? going to encourage you to do it any way other than Lutheran, okay? So you get to screw it up. You get to do it because you're afraid of something, right? If, if you're someone who, who responds to poverty and to hunger because you're afraid something bad will happen to you if you don't, as someone whose salary depends on people writing really big checks for whatever reason they write them. I'll just give you your, your shame look right now. Really, you, you could have given more, really, in this economy. 
Because the only people who are doing what Jesus is asked, remember Jesus doesn't say give 20%. Tithing was made up later. Jesus says to the rich man, give everything and sell it to the poor. And in Acts, it goes even farther. It says, anytime you see someone in need, give them what they need. Right? Also known as the gospel of dumb things not to do. Only because we don't have the kind of community that everyone is doing that. That works if everyone is doing that. If you, every time someone comes to you and says they need something, you give it to them. That only works if every time you need something, you can go to someone else and they'll give it to you, right? So we don't do that because we don't think anyone will do that for us. I know some people who do do that. They're homeless and they've literally given everything away. And they follow the Bible way better than I do. And so my work with those people is to convince them to keep something. To keep a mattress below their head. I got this stall at the Synod ELCA um, domestic hunger gathering. It's made in Tanzania in a place where the ELCA gave goats to the community with the idea that goats can be meat, they can be milk, and, and the gift of goats saved that village who had no income. And it's made actually from goat skin, and I wear it because it's really heavy. And this, this stole is supposed to be around my neck to remind me that I'm yoked to God. I'm essentially God's oxen, right? I'm the one who's going to do the hard manual labor of making this congregation fruitful and work. Look, we got a couple more oxen over here. <laughs> but this stole that I paid for without thinking of it much um, actually will feed everyone in that village through an entire winter. And so I also wear it as a sign of humility that for less than I get paid to talk to you for the next 15 minutes is the amount that feeds that entire village through an entire winter. And I I say that because there are some people who feel like their whole life, if it can't be perfect, we might as well not bother. I love these kinds of people because they make sure there's no typos in bulletins. They help us in hard budget years to know the thing that's fixable. Um, But sometimes the fear of acting can be the most difficult thing. And so I remind you that as someone who owns a condo in San Francisco, I'm very much invested in housing not being affordable to other people. Right? Because if the price of my condo goes down, all of my savings and earnings that I've put into my mortgage goes kaput. And I don't trust people to give me a place to stay without that. So I'm as much in that gray mucky area as everyone else. And yet, I still try and show up. And people want to know the right answer often. They want to know, do I give money to this place or to this place? Um, as, As an executive director, In a tough economy, I say always write your biggest checks to welcome ministry. Um, The pastor can give you our address, right? (laughs) 
But the real truth of it is, is that it's the murky middle places that are going to do the most good. And so here's, here's a few stories. Know that, but before I tell them, they make me, make, me, may make me sound like a superhero, so remember, I'm still a Lutheran, right? <laughs> I'm still my murky middle space. And, and wherever you give from is good too. So here's, here's a story of um, one day I was sleeping out on the streets because when I, in, when I was very young in my ministry, where I've been for 10 years now, I thought, well, you know, the more I suffer, the better this is going to go. Off, a rookie mistake at the beginning of most jobs, I think. And so I, I slept on the streets, and for 10 years I've, I've gone out on the streets and done a street retreat to listen to what's going on for people around, and I've slept um, on the streets of San Francisco for about eight years, and I also slept out um, when the churchwide assembly was in Minneapolis. I slept out during the entire churchwide assembly there, during tornadoes and thunderstorms. And in, in part, I do it to raise attention to poverty issues, and in part, I do it to feel in my bones what it feels like for people that I say no to on a regular basis, or to find out ways I can improve our services to make them better. And so I was sleeping on the sidewalk in front of our church in a sleeping bag, feeling pretty cocky, right? Um, and all of a sudden, it hit me for the first time in a way that it normally wouldn't because I, I have to convince myself and at least my mother that I'm a superhero enough to sleep on those streets. But just for one moment as I slept in that sleeping bag, it kind of hit me, all the stories I had heard about what happens to homeless people who sleep on the streets, those, those horror stories that you sometimes read about in the paper, and they just started going through my mind. And once I thought about them a little, then they just, you know, I thought of more and more of them. And then I started to think about what happens to women who sleep out on the streets, and I got even more scared. And I just tried to talk myself out of it. I said, you know, you're a black belt, it'll be fine. And I realized I was in a sleeping bag, and it wraps tightly around your arms and your legs, and it doesn't matter if you're a black belt. And in order to sleep through the night, I just told myself, as long as nothing touches you, you'll be fine. As long as nothing touches you. And then about 2 o'clock in the morning, something touched me. And I had the sleeping bag wrapped tap around the top of my head. And I thought, well, at least they don't know I'm a female. Should I look out? Will that be worse or not? Maybe it'll go away, I thought. But then it touched me again. I couldn't just pretend it was a mouse anymore. So I looked out. And there was this homeless man, more stereotypical than you can imagine in your mind, wild eyes, crazy hair, and the kind of laughing cackle that only comes from paranoid schizophrenia, laughing at me. And it was Dominic, who I had eaten with for six years, putting a blanket over the top of me. And he said, all these years I've been sleeping out, you've been giving me blankets, and finally I get to give one to you. There's something holy in getting to a place of vulnerability. There's something holy in the midst of that. There's a way that we care about poverty or hunger 
or cancer or AIDS or malaria or whatever it is. There's a way that we care about that much more deeply when it affects us personally, when it affects a family member or it touches us in some sort of way. And if the only way to care that deeply is to have a pastor come all the way from San Francisco and bring those stories to you, ta-da, right? But I bet you have those stories in your own lives, too. Even if it was just a moment of wondering how you're going to feed your kids on a day where you don't know where you are and you've driven a long time and you don't know if there's a restaurant. We all have bits of hunger stories, whether it's the depression or our own lives struggling with hunger for a really long time. I'll tell you one more story. This is a story of my getting it utterly wrong. It's, a, it's another sad one, but it's Lent, so, you know, deal with it. And um, it's, it's a homeless man who was knocking on the door of the church. And that's my job. My job is to answer the door for the homeless guy who knocks on the door of the church. But it was the day. You know the day. The day you have 18,000 things on your to-do list, and you have a board meeting, and you are flying somewhere the next day and your, your kid is crying. Whatever the thing is that's the day that you just pray no one's going to knock on your door, that was that day. And he knocked on the front door of the church and everyone ignored him as we so often do in San Francisco because there's going to be at least 18 times someone's knocking on the door. But he had been a church organist Um, before he became homeless, and he became homeless through illness and not being able to afford his medications. But because he was a church organist, he knew the surefire way to not let everyone inside of that church ignore him. He laid out in front of the only entrance to the church, and he just laid there. And he was sick, and he made it so that it was easier for us to deal with him than to walk past him. And so I brought him inside, and I said, I, I, I'm so busy. I totally don't have time to help you today. I, we got him some soup. We gave him some comfy benches. We let him take a nap. We got him some blankets. But it clearly wasn't enough help because he was clearly very sick. And I knew that if I sent him back outside, he was going to die just on the streets. It was kind of cold. And I knew I couldn't do enough, so I did what I could. And at the end of the day, I created an extra hour's worth of work because I didn't have it in my heart to tell him that he was going to have to leave. And so finally, I worked up my courage, and I went into the other room where he was sleeping, and he said, I know you have to kick me out. He said, I know I'm going to die tonight on the sidewalk can I just have a Bible? And in the moment where there's nothing better that you can think of to do, he knew all of the words that a pastor would tell him, and in that moment he was being a pastor to me, making it okay for me to do what I needed to do to keep the church safe and lock the doors and um, get to my meetings on time. And I walked home, knowing he wouldn't be alive the next morning. And the very first voicemail on my phone machine 
was the medical examiner's office because he had died overnight in the cold on the street. But they knew to call us because inside of his Bible was his social security check with the address of the church and my name on the envelope that he had gotten from me. And I was able to go down and give him last rites through a window. And he died as someone who had a name, which might not sound like much, but was huge. More than 1,500 people die in San Francisco without a name. And in that moment, because he had had the briefest of interactions that felt like achingly too little to do, he got to have a memorial service and a funeral and a name. Very Lenten, right? I know. I took us to the dark place. But we're people who live in the gray, whether it's the Ash Wednesday ashes, whether it's our theology not having yes or no, right or wrong answers, or whether it's living with murky stories where it feels like there's not a right thing to do, we're people who trudge along and do it anyway. And part of our trudging is trudging to this table, a table with bread and wine that's not enough to feed us or fill our hunger pains or sometimes even keep our tummy from not grumbling for lunch. And Luther had people bring bread for the communion. Everyone brought a different loaf, and they tried to outdo each other by getting the best bread they could. And whoever's bread was the nicest became the communion bread that day. And then as everyone left, they had to take a loaf of bread with them, regardless of if they had brought any when they came in, and give it to someone on their way home. There is an ancient way that Lutherans are required to respond to hunger and poverty. We might not be able to get to a place within our lifetimes to see it feel better, to feel a remedy for it, but we have to keep having guts that are turned. We have to keep writing letters. We have to keep acting out of shame or guilt or whatever your motivation is. And if you find yourself completely unmotivated, you can use the text where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. That's for those who could care less about hunger, but think they should. Because it says you don't have to have your heart in the right place before you give. Put your treasure there and your heart will go. And hopefully we can move to a place where it's like that, that first passage where the words are written on our hearts so deeply that it just flows from us and we never feel separated from God. But until then, in our lack of knowing the right thing to do or the right words to say or the right amount to put on a check, we sing. Pour me, pour me, troubles bury me down. Pour me, pour me, my troubles will bury me down. Amen.